All right, everyone, welcome back. Glad for those of you who are persevering unto the end. We are looking at a reasonable and biblical view of why we are to be optimistic, not only about life now, but life during the last things, life during what many are accustomed to call the Q, <laughs> sorry, we're in Q&A, but what are accustomed to call the end times. So uh, I hope everyone can join us, all of you. I exhort you on the interwebs to ask questions. Remember, branchofhope.org. Scroll down to the bottom, find the Submit Q&A. Put in a name or an, uh, a pseudonym, gnome de plume, gnome de guerre, and right away. So I have questions here for that. We'll alternate between the room and online. That is our conventional practice. All of you who are able, please approach the mic for questions. And I will reintroduce briefly our panelists. We have Deacon Aaron Davies, we have Dr. Eddie Inorga, and we have Deacon Bob Peruka remaining with us. So glad to have you. Hopefully everyone came back from the break. And would anyone in the room like to ask a question? Oh, nice. Yeah, she better not. <laughs> Hello, thank you so much for your uh, talks today. Really did enjoy them. And I have two questions. Uh, each of you, I would like to respond to them. And the first one is, how long have you known the Lord, Bob? Put a date on it? No, just approximate years. 18, that's great, okay. And how long have you been at Branch? Twelve years. Okay, great. I really appreciate that. And Dr. Eddie, the same? I would tell you that I had a childlike faith even when I was uh, an altar boy in a Roman Catholic school and church. And that uh, I think I came to a more mature faith uh, perhaps uh, 20 years ago, around 1992. I think it's the date and the day when someone gave me a, a Bible, and I've been at Branch of Hope for about um, five years or so. Great. Yeah. Thank you. Um, I became a believer sometime around, I was 21, sometime in the summer, um, and I've been, and that was the first time I had felt like conviction of sin before God, um, and I have been at Branch since our first Bonson Conference in November 2013. Wow, that's great. Thank you so much. All right, seeing none yet online, I will take okay. another from the room. Well, I have a question in Deuteronomy 31. It said, the Lord said to Moses, you'll be buried with your fathers. So my question is about cremation. Mm -hmm. What do you think about cremation? Who wants to do that one? Well, I'll just break the silence, I guess, because um, I wasn't prepared to answer that kind of question. But um, I, interestingly enough, my father wanted to be cremated. I didn't really understand it because he was a professing believer. And I thought to me that being buried was the symbolism of, you know, Christ being buried and that will rise again one day. You know, cremation seems to just kind of not bother with that symbol 
um, you know, people who die in, uh, you know, plane wrecks or, or, or at sea or whatever don't have that option of, you know, they might burn even though they would have preferred to be buried. So I don't see it as um, a better word than like showstopper, I guess. I just feel like it's a lack of doing that symbolism, um, you know, when you have the opportunity to do so. I feel like it's and and then you're you're also remembered because your 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 um you know your 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 resting place is there your tombstone is there or whatever. For my dad, they took his ashes and and you know spread it to the favorite places he liked to go. Some of it went in the Gulf of Mexico. Some of it went here or there, and that was that was it. There's nowhere to go and visit dad and think about dad again anymore. He's just gone. So um, it's a it seems to me a different statement. Um, so I would just prefer the burials because of the, the, I think, the statement it makes about the hope of the future. Okay. Yeah, and on either end of that, we always remember that we're saved by God's grace through faith and not by whether we're buried or cremated. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean that we should be uh, uh, agnostic or, you know, uh, about what to do. I think ideally we, we ought to be buried. Um, and then on the other end is that God is fully capable of bringing back people that even have died in the ocean or, you know, have, you know, died in a plane uh, or whatever, or even been cremated uh, by their direction, by somebody else's direction. Uh, and so he's, he's, he's thoroughly capable of resurrecting them, giving them a, bo- a new body, a new glorified body. Well, that's what I was thinking with the Holocaust. You have all those millions of people that were all mm-hmm. cre- cremated. Yeah, it seems to me that uh, agreeing with you guys that the tradition and the example in Scripture is that people are buried. Um, But again, it doesn't mean that you're saved or not saved based on you being cremated. So that's my simple answer. (laughs) I know it was very clear. Thank you. Thank you. So we take all tough questions. <laughs> no, I shouldn't say that because I don't have to answer. Uh, anybody online? Calling out online. Remember, so, <laughs> branchofhope.org, scroll to the bottom, submit Q&A. Anyone else in the room? So, so are you, it's basically you're saying that... that Do you mind? Would you mind, please? <laughs> Terribly? You're going to so, be... So basically you're saying that it's a non-essential, right? I mean, because it does say that out of these stones I could raise descendants of Abraham. So in other words, whether you're buried, cremated, or anything, it doesn't really say that you're one or the other. You know what I'm getting at? Well, I, I think probably be better to say that the level at which it matters, it's not a deal breaker. All right, know? I'll go with uh, that. Yeah, it's not a deal breaker. Uh, yet, you know, there is... Uh, you know, I, I, I think the ideal would be that we would be buried, and there are a lot of different reasons because that's kind of the model in the, uh, in the Bible. Uh, and it also speaks to the, it sends a message of the hope for future uh, resurrection from generation to generation. Like you said, you know, there's a place and there's a body, and uh, but who knows at the end, I'm not sure what condition those bodies are in, like, you know, if they've been molecular, you know, on a molecular level, fully degenerated, uh, even if they've been buried for 2,000 years. 
And when you say a deal breaker, you're saying for salvation. Right? For salvation. Non salvific, yeah. Yeah, yeah non salvific. Um, yeah, I mean, just to be clear, I mean, we're all in agreement that nothing that you do decides your entry into heaven. It's Christ's saving of you. So even, and this came up in our elder interviews. Um, or at least I brought it up, I guess, was that even if you're a believer and, and you were to sadly take your own life, right? That's the last thing that you do. There's still mercy there. If God has decided to save you, he will do it. And, and you, even yourself, can't pull yourself away from him. Um, so that doesn't decide what happens to you afterwards, thankfully, <laughs> just as long as that's clear. However you go out, Whatever's done with your body afterwards, when you're dead, it's done. You're, you're done. Yeah, let me just add one other twist, James. Uh, you know, there are going to be a lot of situations as we walk through life where what to do, what's best to do is not immediately clear to us. And we do have kind of one primary obligation, and that is to try and seek God's will in Scripture and in among his community of believers for guidance and direction in those things. And in doing that, we've fulfilled our probably primary and most important obligation, you know, as to whether I should wear a white shirt or a green shirt when I come to, you know, give a presentation. Um, there's not going to be completely clear in Scripture, but I can consult with the other people in the uh, congregation, and uh, turns out probably a white shirt's not a good idea. Uh, and so, um, you know, there are going to be many decisions that we have to make where the answer is not going to be clear to us. But our primary obligation is to seek God, God's will in his word and, again, in fellowship. And in thinking on it um, simply from a practical um, perspective, it's become harder to become buried um, than it was back in the day. You have, you have mortuaries. It's a profit-making business. You have cemeteries. Lots are sold. The lots are expensive. People have a hard time affording them, et cetera, et cetera. So um, not to throw the decision-making into the secular realm. It should, it should only be based on secular. But um, it's harder. It's harder these days. So that's kind of the context we live in. So I, I think for myself, I would seek to honor tradition as it's laid out in scripture, if at all possible. So <clears throat> we're in this pandemic, and I think it was Mexico that had so many bodies sure. that were being. Oh, yeah. Sorry, I'm signaling Alan. Oh. Continue. So anyway, anyways, Mexico yeah. was yeah. Uh, having so many bodies that mm -hmm. needed to be buried. Yes. And with that being said, they were offering, and this is, you know, Mexico's known as Sure. Roman Catholic, you know, mm -hmm. bury this and that mm -hmm. tradition. And with that being said, they were offering people to be cremated because there was no room for them. Sure. Um, Absolutely. And we keep on seeing that word tradition. So mm. uh, with, with that being said, do we follow being buried like tradition? And then the same thing would go with, like, then you're going to go down that road. Well, tradition, we do bread and wine and communion. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of people that do grape juice. <laughs> And crackers, and that's not part of tradition. I mean, where do we stop and draw the line on what's tradition and what's, you know, 
Maybe I used a bad word, an example. No, no, I'm, I think it's a no, great no, no, word. No, 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 no. I believe it's, it's a great question, and it's, an, it's, a, it's, a, it's a heartbreaking example that you bring up. Um, so, yeah, completely understood, you know. Um. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Thank you. Sorry, boys. This is hard. You got some easy questions out there? Sorry, gentlemen. <laughs> you have a, I have one. Oh, yeah, sure. I just, I thought of um, when Jesus was buried, I think it mentions that it was a wealthy man who took him and had a, a tomb. So it wasn't, you know, it was costly. To have, and even uh, Abraham paid a lot to bury Sarah, uh, and he was a wealthy man. So there is some sort of to the practicality of it. Um, and even if you go through the Old Testament, when people couldn't afford some of the sacrifices that were prescribed, God said, "Well, okay, if you can't do the ram or whatever, you can do a couple doves, cheaper." So obviously, it's a practical thing to have wine. Someone had to have grown it. It had to take some years, then it's got to get to you. You have to pay for it. You know, if you're on a remote island and you're a pastor, you may not have wine. But if you do, you want to. If you can afford it, you'd like to. Like, that's the heart behind it, the heart behind the tradition. And James, very briefly, what I would add to that is it's not tradition in the pure sense, because in Scripture, in the science of biblical interpretation, we have what's called a proved example and so what you'll find throughout the Old and New Testaments is a proved example for burial. I would challenge anyone to show warrants through a proved example for cremation. So we don't always establish something by merely thou shalt or thou shalt not. Rather, when we're drawing biblical inferences, we'll use, the, we'll use good and necessary consequence, right? We'll use logic to deduce inescapably, ineluctably from the text what we're to do. And one of the ways we do this, there's a, you know, we don't need to enumerate them all now, is a proved example. So if we say you know, we, we want to be imitators of Christ, we want to follow after Christ, it would not make sense to forsake following after Christ when it comes to how we are to treat our bodies. Very briefly. Okay, so before we go on to, not as brief as I was hoping it would be, sorry everybody. So we do have uh, two online questions, and see how excited I am? So keep, keep on... Keep on keeping on, anybody who wants to ask more. Our first question, I'm so glad I'm not on this panel <laughs> except reading them. Isaac Batty, how important are addressing presuppositions first, and that's in all caps, in regards to eschatology? Well, I'll answer for Jason. <laughs> nice. Actually, he began his talk, you know, I, when I... I, when I thought of this assignment, I thought he would kind of give some empirical basis, which is how we ended his talk. But he said, you know, first, we're going to read scripture, which is kind of like, you know, where we would, uh, you know, where we would lay all of our hope and the foundation of our thinking. So I think that's where it would be first. So I think Jason had, was a perfect example of that. And then he went from the scripture to, you know, what it is that we see, you know, what, what is it that we see now in our culture, throughout history, and so forth. So I think it's very important. I, I think just the nature of the word presupposition tells you that that's where we're starting. So it is first. And if you don't address it, it makes it hard because that, I think that's when people end up screaming past each other mm. because they don't know where the other one's coming from. So I, I find it very important in debates um, or discussions to ask questions first, to kind of find out 
what the assumptions are going in. Even in engineering, when I sit down to, to figure out a problem, I first take a look at all the inputs. What are we trying to do? What's available? What's going on? So that we have all those assumptions out front, and then we're going to try to, to solve it. And I, that thinking applies in all areas of life. You have to know where, where we're all beginning from. Are we on the same page to start? Then we have our immediate context of what we're talking about, eschatology or engineering or whatever it is. Yeah, thanks, Aaron. And, and also, uh, from, from uh, my talk, it was more of a, in a sense, a negative apologetic. First of all, you've got to sometimes clear out the weeds, and you've got to look at the other people's worldview that, from our perspective, is untrue and point out where it's failing, where it's falling short. And once that, some of that work is done, then you can introduce into uh, that person's realm of thinking or con conceptualization the answer, some of the answers to the questions that that person's worldview doesn't answer. And I, I remember uh, reading Walter Martin's book, The Kingdom of the Cults, and the first thing he says is, this is what I believe. Here's where I'm coming from. I'm coming from a biblical life and worldview perspective. Christ is prophet, priest, and king. He's a savior. And he lays it all out there. So it's like, okay, here's where I'm coming from analyzing these other worldviews. So again, yes, to your point, presuppositions are vital, I think. And Bob, really quickly, just to, for, to add on, would you say that when you can't... I remember, I got the lapel, so back to Bob. Uh, would you say that when you're laying out this negative apologetic... Mm -hmm. Part of what you're trying to do when it's addressed to a wider audience, because you can't ask those questions that Aaron was talking about, is to be as comprehensive as you can, because you're, try you're sort of trying to clear as many objections as possible before then laying out your positive presuppositions, if you will. Exactly, yes, yes. And uh, that could be quite time-consuming, because there's a lot, of, uh, a lot to uh, clear out. But uh, to try and focus, I guess, on one or two key fundamental points you know, would be the, would be the approach I would take. And I, I don't know about anybody else out there, but uh, when I engage in these conversations now, um, it's hard. It's hard to engage with um, non-believers. It's getting harder and harder. So um, I'm looking for help of some kind of point of contact that I can um, share with these people. Like even a liberal who I said at least we agree on, okay, we need to have a free exchange of ideas here. Neither side should be shut down. So allow us to both put our ideas on the table and argue our case. In, in today's um, context, it's hard. It's, uh, I'm almost shut down before I even start. You know? And that, that's, that's a, that's a, that's a uh, I find that very difficult. I don't know about anybody else. Yeah, because you, you have a bunch of misinformation. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, Alternative sorry. facts. Uh, yeah. Okay, very good. So, yeah, it is. That, that's, that's very good. Any other questions in the room? Yeah, please. Thank you, Marval. Thanks for stepping in. Good morning. Good morning. And good morning. thank you for the talks. It was really good. And my name is Marval. I'm from, from Baldwin City. My, I have two questions and one comment. The, one, the first comment is about the woman that Jason was mentioning who, who was sick for 12 years. So I, 
my comment about it is like she understood that the doctor couldn't fix her or couldn't fix the her problem. She need to run after Jesus. I think it's the same thing that the nation, like I can talk about 80 or United States, that the leaders can't really fix the problem that we're facing now is we need to run after Jesus as he understood to do that. So my, my first question is, we said everybody going to know the Lord. Are they going to accept or no? Because I know certain people will run after Jesus because of fear. When they hear like an out loud voice, they're going to fear. It's because they, when they fear, they go to Jesus or accept Jesus as their Savior. That's my first question. And the second one is, when the Bible mentioned the day is going to be bad or getting worse, this is not a way that for us to not surprise when things happen like, say, all right, that's, I'm not surprised. I know it's going to be bad, so I need to be prepared and or to get ready for the second coming, second coming of Jesus Christ. That's my two questions. I don't know if you, you know, I have some accent I mentioned. I don't know if you understand. The question is, is the nature of the knowledge of the Lord that's spoken of, you know, as time progresses, is that just to know Lord as our covenant Lord or to know the Lord as our enemy? Uh, and so that would be kind of the question. I think the context of all of those is that it would be a true saving knowledge of God and that, that, uh, that it would be a, that, that knowing Lord as our covenant Lord. Knowing God is our covenant Lord, so that that would be my answer to the first question, and then, and then the second question that you said was, well, you guys remember what the second question? Was? Uh, the second question had to do with uh, preparing for oh, okay. that which is right, bad right. in light of the second. Question. Right, right, and so uh, you know, it, it depends on how you understand, you know, Matthew twenty-four, where some of these things are, or even in uh, the end of. Um, uh, the sent, the end of uh, Second Timothy, uh, where it talks about you know how times are going to be, or, yeah, Second Timothy three about how times will be getting worse and those types of things. Uh, I think that Matthew twenty four, you know, many would argue that that's really has to do with the destruction of the temple. It begins that whole passage has to do with like what's going to happen in this next coming generation, and that is that things are going to get really bad, you know, for the Jewish people that are in Jerusalem, trying to hide out in Jerusalem and so forth, and that the temple itself, which is that physical you know, symbol or representation of God, will be turned over. Uh, and so you know, that's that part. And I think that there will always be some degree of rebellion and persecution and difficulty that we're going to face, and it's going to take all kinds of forms, maybe even worse than some of the things that we see today. But yet, in spite of all that, the very next thing that comes up says, in spite of all those things, what's our job is to preach the gospel, is to forge ahead and to walk by faith and not by sight. 
you know, that, that even if things around us don't look good, our marching orders are clear. I want to take um, a little different approach to the first question um, because I want to note uh, that the, the is at least the word translated in English is the submission of all of Christ's enemies to him, which I think you brought out a good point that that's not always a loving submission. It can be a spiteful submission. And we read at the end of Revelation 20, when Satan's released, he's able to gather up some enemies to attack the people of God. So I think there has to be some, but I think, I think you're in agreement with that, if I'm not, yeah. yeah, yeah. So I think that's just the other piece of the pie there, that there will be some who have been under subjection to Christ, but were ready to go when, you know, their real leader is released. Um, as uh, the other question was, oh yes, the eschatology one. Um, I had this thought during the talks, and I wanted to share it, um, because people say things are getting worse. Well, if something is supposed to be able to get worse, that means it had to have been better at some point. And if it was better, how did it get there? At some point, it was getting better, right? And now it's getting worse. But how did it get better? When did it get better? No, I don't think anyone has thought of that, that progress must have been made at some point for us to actually get worse. Did it reach its apex with Leave it to Beaver in the 1950s? Well, that means that we were getting better up until then. And how were we getting better up until then if things are always supposed to be getting worse? If you really believe things will always get worse, then you have to say, well, it must have been worse ever since Adam. In which case, as Pastor Paul mentioned, the cross was of no effect. Literally no effect. So we have to come to the realization, if we think things are getting worse, they had to have been better. And if they were better, how did it get better? in this, you know, given our, if we're still in the New Testament era. Yeah, um, Malva, right? Marvel. Yeah, Marval, sorry. Um, first of all, when, when you're, uh, when we're considering suffering and, and uh, bad things happening, your country has suffered enormously. Uh, I don't think any of us in here have any idea of what, uh, what is going on just off the shoreline of the United States. And so um, I really can't speak personally of the kind of suffering your people have gone through. And it's hard for me sometimes I can kind of give a flippant answer like, well, you know, we live in a fallen world. Like you said, expect it. We expect bad things to happen. But um, it's another thing to experience it like uh, your people have. So um, anyway, just an observation that... Uh, We've all had heartache in our lives. We've all had challenges. We've all had things to overcome. But it's some, sometimes it seems that some areas of the world are hit harder than others with the fallenness. So um, I don't have an answer for it. Um, uh, it's a mystery to me, except that we do live in a fallen world. And that's kind of my fallback position. But I guess my point is I haven't experienced the fallenness uh, that you guys that your, your country has experienced and your people. Yeah, but, but there is kind of one observation that I've made after going to Haiti a few times, and that is uh, one of them is the level of contentment that people have in even the most difficult of situations that I would probably just roll up in a ball and start crying. Uh, and, and, um, and, um, 
that that would be number one, and that even within Haiti there is a huge amount of faith. You know, it's like you know the neighborhood that we're in. You wake up in the morning and you can on Sunday you hear singing. You know, kind of like all around. You know, it's coming from all different directions. I, I don't get I don't I don't hear that in Rolling Hills Estates. <laughs> you know, I don't you know I don't I don't I don't wake up in the morning on Sunday and kind of hear people singing over here and hear people singing over there and hear people singing over here. And so you know even though Haiti has been hit by you know some very difficult things, I think there are people there of incredible fortitude and and faith that uh, are just incredible examples for all of us. And the only meaning and purpose for national suffering, for the, the suffering of the nation of Haiti, the suffering of any nation, is that King Jesus would, by his gracious rule, providentially overrule that which is evil and use it as a means to draw his people to himself. So he glorifies himself in the afflictions that he visits on all nations. All right, we've got another online question. And it's Judah J. And he asks, what is the proper view of the lion and lamb lying together? Well, I end up with the microphone last all the time, so I guess I'll answer first. Um, if I was to exegete from the hip, which Pastor Paul has warned me not to do, but I'm going to go ahead and try. Um, to me, it seems like... And Pastor Paul kind of hinted at this, that you'd have to go out into the Serengeti and look for a lion and a lamb and kind of capture it on video if you wanted to verify this. I think it has a broader context beyond, um, like for instance, when you take the verses of uh, not having, having an ox and a donkey plow together, uh, Paul the Apostle drew that into marriage, not having an unbeliever and believer uh, unequally yoked. Same thing here, you're going to have something that would be symbolized by a lion and lamb, something very strong and potentially aggressive, something very weak and maybe um, feeble, that they'd be able to be at peace together. So maybe that might mean, you know, what if I have some big, strong neighbor next to me and I'm a weakling? We're going to be able to live side by side somehow. I'm not going to be in fear just by his sheer nature. Um, I think it has a broader meaning to that. But I think it also does have an effect on creation as well. I think we will see as God makes more peace in the world that animals will reflect that as well. But when you look for it, look for a wolf, because I'm pretty sure it's a wolf with a lamb. I know it's always shown. Oh, I think it's more accurate of a verse. I know it's always shown in our Christian iconography, such as it is, as uh, a lion and a lamb. But... uh, from where, from where I'm reading right now, it's the wolf also shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the kid. Uh, and then it goes on. And the calf and the young lion and the fatling together. So there is a lion as we continue down the passage. And a little child shall lead them. So Isaiah, what, 11, 6 primarily for those playing along at home. Sorry to interrupt. I think the big category is the undoing of the curse of the fall. You know, that's kind of like the big category that it falls under, you know, is that after the fall, I think Paul read about how, you know, the land itself, you know, would be uh, would be cursed. 
and even in the, some of the examples that I read that, you know, when sin um, abounds, it affects everything. You know, it affects everything, even even the, the land uh, and the, the environment. Whereas we also read in Ezekiel where that, you know, once, once a new heart has been given um, and a new spirit, that things will return to such that it'll be like the Garden of Eden. And I doubt that in the Garden of Eden, I, I would imagine that in the Garden of Eden, the wolf and the lamb coexisted peacefully. I agree with everything you guys have said. <laughs> I think of my cat, Pepe, our cat, sorry, honey, our cat, Pepe, Good catch. and our dog, Luna, and Poncho living in harmony. <laughs> yeah, it is a good thought. And, and so far, so good. We've had a couple of mishaps, but uh, it's taken some training. Uh, just back to the, the previous question about burial, my wife just texted me asking me, so, where do you want to be buried? <laughs> we'll talk about that later, my dear. Sweet. And who's Poncho? Is he a bird? No, Poncho, they're two Hispanic dogs and a, and a Hispanic cat. We pulled them all out of Ensenada. Got it. Nice. That would be something if he had a bird, a dog, and a cat. <laughs> so the curse will be reversed as far as the curse was found, right? That's why we like that hymn so much, that Christmas hymn. Uh, we do have another internet question, but we have a question in the room. So we're going to, like I said, alternate. Please step forward to the microphone, sir. Hi. Thank Hi. you guys for coming and doing this. Um, my question is actually related to the one of the ones on... Uh, online and I'm <clears throat> coming to this my dad actually was into postmillennialism first and uh and so was talking to us a lot about it and uh actually wanted to be here but he had work um mm. and he was coming at it through his his way and it was like uh a lot having to do with proof text and scripture and obviously that is the basis of of where you're coming from but for me it kept I just saw, you know, my dad and my uncle, and they're just going back and pre, pre-mail dispy, and, like, it's like they're holding the Bible, and they're just like, it's this kind of Bible thing, like the battle of the Bible verses. And so uh, I do think about the question about presuppositions, and I guess it's kind of a wisdom question of in any, any given, you know, interaction, is it going to be about the Bible verses, or do we talk about what I found and kind of where I ended up coming through uh, post-millennialism was thinking about, okay, we're all looking at the Bible, but what's our hermeneutic? And then we, we talk about like a hermeneutic and we say, okay, this is our hermeneutic, but what is the, the, the philosophy or the worldview or the metaphysics, you know, is it, is it what the Nicene fathers had? Is it, is it what we see, the consistent you know, classical Christian, you know, worldview that undergirds the hermeneutic. And, and so, yeah, I guess, you know, kind of two ends of the, of the spectrum. And, yeah, just thinking about, like, how, how you guys each, I, in, depending on the interaction, like, is it about, you know, Bible verses? Or is, do you guys tend to, you know, talk about, okay, you know, is it easier for a Reformed Baptist and a Reformed Presbyterian to talk about these things because they agree so much, or is it cool to talk to anybody from any, 
It really yeah, depends on the Reformed Baptists. Baptist. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not. Yeah, no, but there are some really strong dispensationalists, Reformed Baptists. But I, I agree, it's hard to see um, Christians debate, especially on a topic like this. And, and I think the reason it's so heated is because it has such heavy implications on how you're to view and address the problems of the world. Um, and it can split churches, it can have people leave churches and all that kind of stuff. Um, I think, though, uh, I'll just give you an example, not related directly to eschatology, but one time I was kind of asked out of the blue what I thought about prophecy. And all sorts of things went into my head about this, but then I kind of stopped and I asked the other person, I said, well, what, what do you think that word means? Like, I, I don't even, I don't want to make any assumptions on even where you're coming from. You know, because there's all sorts of definitions of prophecy out there. And that actually led to get to more specifically what this person was really trying to get after. You know, they had decided to ask a broad question, but really there was something underneath. And so I think what I would like to do, and I have um, family members, you know, uh, just I'm sure like everyone else, that it's the mainstream ideas, as Pastor Paul says, everyone kind of believes in the dispensational view. I've had these arguments before. I think they're healthy. I don't, I don't want to shy away from them. I don't want to be afraid of them. I don't think they, they haven't hurt family ties or anything like that. Um, but I think it's, first of all, healthy that we're debating Scripture, that that's where we think we should make our ideas come from. And then secondly, um, it's just a matter of tact and um, the desire to see the other... To, as Paul says, to be of one mind. If your goal is that you want to be of one mind, that'll bring you the humility to say, okay, I want to be persuasive, I want to be engaging, I want to hear, I want to understand where the other person's coming from because I have the hope and promise that we will all be of one mind one day. And I, if I do, am I confident about what I believe is true, I can take the time to work with someone else through it rather than having this heated, you know, arm wrestle right away kind of thing. Yeah, with regards to the battle Bible verses, you know, this it's come kind of this two way street of of we we have this kind of overriding set of beliefs, you know, that are a product of many Bible verses that come together and form a particular kind of like structure over what we believe, and then those are tested and supported by Bible verses. So the two of them come into play, and so. Um, yeah, it's not just the Bible verses because they're all in, understood in some general context. And they kind of got to be tested back and forth. Yeah, in terms of um, hermeneutics and, re- and Reformed theology, I came to Christianity with a pretty much, uh, a, a pretty, um, I wasn't interested until I was in my early, early 50s or my late 40s. So I didn't have a tabla rasa, but um, I didn't have a lot of baggage, I guess. I, had, I was brought up Catholic, and, the re, and I was introduced to the, the Reformed faith, and it just seemed to me the most consistent, most intelligible uh, of system that hung together that was consistent, which was really important. It didn't contradict itself. Uh, parts of it are very difficult. Parts of it are hard. Parts of it are... It's like, oh man, you know, um, just 
things are things are hard to understand sometimes and, and hard to get my head around, but I have faith that it's it's not the truth that's the problem. It's it's myself and my limited understanding. And I do find that uh, one guy I like uh, who uh, I think is a Reformed Baptist is a guy named Albert Muller. To me, I, I listen to that guy all the time. And um, aside from him being a Baptist, I would pretty much agree with everything he has to say. I have a lot of respect for him. So it is possible. And he's a guy that actually has on a show, he, has, he had on James Lindsay, who's an atheist, who wrote the book on critical race theory. And they had a great conversation. But I could tell at the end, Muller was like, you know, James, I, I'd like to talk to you more about your worldview and about your perspective. And anyway, it was just really interesting. So conversation is, is achievable, uh, even with those on the other side. Uh, and I think for myself, Reformed Calvinist um, theology is, is as close as it can get to interpreting Scripture correctly. Yeah, and all that's great stuff. And uh, the way I would try to summarize kind of capturing some of the categories you used is if you have a biblical hermeneutic, then you'll arrive at a biblical philosophy and worldview, and that will then help reinforce what you're getting from the text philosophically and from a worldview perspective, right? You're going to build a biblical Weltanschauung, a a biblical world and life view. The way that you're going to do that is by arriving at the text, saying the text is going to teach me everything I need to know about this subject. So one of the overarching goals, and I really pray that we nailed it, is you're hearing Scripture speak, and then you're hearing everything else brought in in support of, in terms of the arguments. But the argument is from Scripture. We are a sola scriptura family. And so if our eschatology is not sola scriptura, we need to be corrected. And that would obviously apply to the other categories that you mentioned. Did I capture all of those, just to make sure, sir? Okay, cool. All right. Good question coming up online. Isaac Batty, to what extent does postmillennialism depend on or utilize an ability to measure physical and spiritual conditions of populations around the world, past, present, or future, and thus require a certain, I believe, amount of trust in our ability to do so? Research studies like Pew reports, statistics, polls slash surveys, et cetera. Well, I think, you know, just from a, a, a bird's eye view, you know, the, the, uh, the kingdom of God began or was inaugurated with Christ and a handful of believers under conditions that were far more brutal than anything we've ever imagined. Uh, and yet, consistently it has grown and you know, created all kinds of beneficial changes throughout history that we enjoy every day. So I think as far as like the idea is like, is there some, you know, do we use empirical data today to help us understand and believe what's actually said in the Bible? And I I would say, yeah, we could, understanding that empirical data is sometimes misleading and that there will always be pockets and ups and downs in this battle towards God's will being done on earth as it is in heaven. I mean, I I would, I mean, the short answer, I guess, is no. Um, We believe what we believe from Scripture alone, right? And so um, it reminds me of the famous book titled How to Lie with Statistics, 
you know, it's, <laughs> it's, a, it's some people's career. Um, <laughs> but uh, no, I, I believe that um, what Scripture says simply because, uh, uh, you know, God said it. And, um, you know, it reminds me of how people will find, oh, you know, I think we believe we found a piece of Noah's Ark or we found the shroud that Jesus was wrapped in um, as though, you know, that was supposed to prove that he was a real person. And I, we don't need those things. Those can be encouraging and helpful. And I believe that if things were studied in truth, they would always lead to the conclusions that you get from Scripture. But you only need the conclusions from Scripture. Everything else is uh, evidence. And again, to be interpreted under some framework, right? I mean, um, just finding something, like if I was to find, God forbid, a bullet in my house, all sorts of theories would come about just from the fact that a bullet was there, you know? Did somebody shoot it? Did somebody throw it? I mean, all, you could make up all these sorts of things. I just have, just having a data point doesn't get me to a conclusion on its own. I need to process it. Yeah, all we need to do is read the news, two different newspapers. Uh, the headlines are the same event, and that shows you the uh, uh, amount of interpretation that goes into any kind of um, objective uh, event. And I find it interesting, too, that um, there are so many benefits of Christianity when you look at you know, orphanages and hospitals and, and, and on and on and on in science, and yet we have a secular world that is benefiting from so many of these things that Christianity has brought about, and yet just a lack of acknowledgement, like it was man in the Enlightenment on his own that brought this about. And so uh, it just, I just don't I just don't get that. <laughs> yeah, it's tough. Any further questions in the house? All right. Hearing nothing further, I'd like to thank you all for joining us. And I'll ask Dr. Eddie, since he's holding the mic, to close us in prayer. All right. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time to come together and just uh, think about and hear about your word and uh, how it will achieve its purpose. Uh, thank you for all the people that uh, helped out. Thank you for um, all the people that have listened and will listen in the future that uh, they would earnestly and honestly um, struggle with these ideas and uh, hopefully come to the conclusion that you would want them to come to. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Amen.